0: Welcome to the Dissolve podcast, episode number eight, the Desire for Chicken edition. I'm Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve, and on today's show we'll talk about the way the film year is increasingly arbitrarily divided into sectors like blockbuster season and prestige season and debate whether this artificial division serves cinema or anyone watching it. We'll look at how some of the year's documentaries are redefining how real-life stories are packaged and told, for better or worse. We'll return to our game Knife Gun Other, where competitors try to remember exactly how various characters die in the movies. And once again, and we'll close with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. This year, we're seeing something that feels a bit like an anomaly in Ender's Game and Thor The Dark World big budget, big screen science fiction and fantasy films coming out in October and November when the theaters are usually packed with more serious awards candidates. We think of this as blockbuster season bleeding into prestige season, just as we're surprised when a high profile awards contender like The Hurt Locker comes out in June among all the big dumb fun movies. The question is why do we think of movies as coming out in seasons? At this point, we're all familiar with the idea of American cinema as conforming to a genre calendar, but isn't that kind of arbitrarily limiting? Who's it benefiting and who is it hurting? Here to discuss where the cinema season model came from and whether we can do anything about it are Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps.
1: And Matt Singer.
0: All right, Scott, history us up really good. Like <laughs> how, how exactly did we get to this point of seeing January and February as cinema's dumping grounds, summer is blockbuster season, winter is prestige season, and, and everything left over is just kind of a no man's land where horrible things crop up that no one wants.
2: Well I would say the the, the organizing principle here is summer. Right. And I think everything else kind of built is built around that idea. And, you know, Jaws was released in June of 1975. And, and though and though blockbuster season, as we know, it probably didn't creep up till the 80s of the top 10 grossing movies of the 1980s. Only only Rain Man was released outside the summer. Every other film was released during the summer. So that is where studios make their money, and that's where they put their big films traditionally. I think the difference now is that they just keep making more of them, <laughs> and so they have to spread them out. And there are, there are ways they can kind of take advantage of traditional dead zones in the schedule and uh, release something like, you know, like earlier this year, you know, Oz the Great and Powerful was released in the middle of February. Well, nothing was going to challenge that movie for weeks, right? So even though not as many people are going to see the movies in February it has kind of run of the place. So uh, there's a strategy behind that.
0: So uh, the problem is that it does sort of seem like, I mean, that movie immediately had a bit of a questionable rep. Um, Steven Soderbergh's Haywire was one of my favorite films of last year. And when it came out, or even when it was scheduled, people said, uh, it's an action movie in January. It couldn't possibly be any good. So films, have, films that come out not within their designated delineated season kind of have a bit of an uphill road to hoe. And I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, is that hurting cinema or am I just overreacting here?
3: Before we get to that, we should also add that a lot of the prestige films come out at the end of the year because uh, the traditionally people who vote on awards have short memories. Just as, as summer has become more defined by blockbusters, the end of the year has been more defined by prestige films for just that reason. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but, but I know I've seen before how, how small a percentage of Academy Award winners come from months other than the end of the year.
0: One aspect of that, actually, as I've been reading up on it, is that a lot of it is built around the school year. Once summer was designated as blockbuster season, as things sort of fell into line, like late fall tends to be where blockbusters that look weak get put because it's more likely that kids are going to be back in school and not available to watch the Avengers over and over and over. Apparently this this one I wasn't quite aware of but apparently for a lot of studios April is when they dump all of their teen oriented movies because teenagers are more likely to you know be running up at the end of the school year and have free time and want to go see films whereas summer everybody's out of school. So the fact that all of these prestige movies are, are stuck at the end of the season is partially because they know all of the kids are going to be back in school and, like, more adults are going to be able to see movies then.
1: I was doing a little research, too, because, as, you know, Keith said, uh, there is this stereotype that all the big Oscar movies come out between September and December, and I was kind of curious how far back that goes, and I I only had time to go back to the early 1960s, but basically, most Oscar winners, at least, from, like, 1960 to today, all come out from September to December. I mean, there are anomalies. You know, Annie Hall came out on April 20th, 1977, and The Sound of Music came out in March. But most movies, even as far back as the 1960s, came out at the end of the year. Kramer versus Kramer, December 19th. The Sting, December 25th. Lawrence of Arabia, December 16th. So it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, there were no movies in the 1980s That were released outside of september to december every single oscar winner of the 1980s was released in that window so it's it's not a new phenomenon
2: well let's not let's not forget too that the christmas season is is not exactly blockbuster free either you know i mean that that concentrated period of time it's a very small window but that is you know yeah i think they i think i've heard stats about it about the Hollywood doing something like a fourth or a third of its entire business during that holiday stretch? Nah, maybe making shit up. But in any case, and it's not its not all prestige that comes out over the holidays. The family, families together, they're seeing the chipmunks or whatever. So it's not, you know, I think we can paint with a pretty broad brush. And I, I kind of want to address a little bit something what Tasha said. I think Haywire is a little bit, uh, you know, and The Hurt Locker 2 are a little bit shaky e- examples for, for me because they're just not done on the same scale as these movies that we're talking about. I mean, I, when you're talking about movies that are are either done, uh, either small studio films or movies that are done outside the studios altogether, I don't really feel like those, they run on seasons at all. Like, I feel like they're just, that they, they they have their own schedule. And, you know, like this summer we saw, you know, we saw some pretty great movies like before Midnight and Francis Ha, but that's not really, that, I don't think, you know, there's an element of counter-programming to that, I think, but it's not... I don't think they're they're really thinking in terms of just what the best season is to release these sorts of movies.
0: Sure, and the other big exception to the rule that I've noticed is uh, foreign film imports. I mean, one of my favorite films of the past five years uh, was this Lebanese film called Where Do We Go Now? And that came out in May. I mean, it came out among all of these, like the beginning of blockbuster season. So, you know, obviously it it looked like an anomaly there. But I think in the same way, you know, Robert Rodriguez made El Moriachi in Spanish, because he thought people would judge it by a different standard than films appearing in English at the same time. You know, given how cheap it was, he, he wanted it to be held to a, a lower standard so people would appreciate it more. I think people know, or at least don't think to interpret like really small features or foreign films by that same standard. My question is more, are films that do come out from, from bigger studios or do have bigger perceptions or do in some way look like Like Thor: The Dark World, and look like they could fit into a different season. Are they being hurt excessively by this idea that you know, if it if it doesn't come out in blockbuster season, it must not be good, right?
3: Oh, I mean, I I think Thor is a little bulletproof for in terms of that. You know, I think people also might be looking for a break from pre- you know, something that's not a prestige offering this time of year. I mean, that's something that we, we talked about talking about for this this segment is, is that occasionally you want something other than what's being, you know, if fish is on the menu, you want chicken sometimes, and that's, that's certainly the case when it comes to breaking movies down in the seasons as well.
0: Well, especially if you've had four straight months of fish. Right. You know. I, mean, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I
3: think, I'm, I feel like I've talked about this before, <laughs> but like I remember seeing the remake of Brides That Revisited in the middle of summer a couple of years ago. More than a couple, probably at this point, and thinking, "All oh, right, movies can do that too. They they're not there's not always about blowing things up and following a uh, three act structure and and um, being recognizing every single person uh, that walks onto the screen. That that's it's kind of refreshing. We have something that's, that's quiet and contemplative or, or and uh, narrative driven. Uh, uh, it's good to be reminded that, that there's more there's more than just the type of movies that you usually see uh, at a certain time of year out there.
1: As I think Scott said earlier, as that blockbuster summer season keeps like expanding bigger and bigger, and now it seems like it used to be Memorial Day, now it's like early May, almost late April, as that stretch of time gets longer and longer. The menu of uh, fish gets longer and longer, and <laughs> oh. uh, your, your desire for uh, chicken gets greater and greater by the end of the, <laughs> the summer. And uh, I think it attributes to, I know a lot of people, and myself included, at the end of the summer, just felt like it had been, you know, this uh, very long, very dreary summer of movies. And then you looked back at some of the movies that came out and you said, oh, yeah, that was kind of fun. That was fun. But it was just that Hollywood has programmed that incredibly dense block of big. You know, sameness that it, it does get so repetitive. That I, I am kind of struck that they don't kind of counter program bigger movies. You know, that they don't, you know, it's one thing to put a little great little foreign film out in the middle of, you know, uh, May, but I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that so rarely do, uh, you know, kind of bigger, more prestigious productions uh, don't come out at that time or, or that they don't move something, you know, a little poppier to, February or something like. Yeah, that.
3: I, I think the worry is in summer, especially things will just get lost. It'll just the the, the marketing blitz behind your 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 Lone Rangers of the world uh, uh, and so on just kind of buries the, the, the discussion of any any other other film. On the on the other hand, you know, last was it last year or two years ago, the, the Mission Impossible Ghost two years ago, the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol came out. I was very grateful for that film in December yeah. uh, for just the opposite reason than we were talking about before.
2: So which again is fish in this metaphor? <laughs> Fishes, fish uh, is all we get all summer long. Okay. Well, um, chicken is apparently bright.
0: Thing, the thing, thing about both
2: keep
3: terrible in hot weather, though. So <laughs>
2: the thing about Hollywood now is that they just they they just can't stop making fish, <laughs> um, and, and and so and so you know you have movies like you know The Hunger Games, Alice in Wonderland, Three Hundred. These movies were released in March. Um, you know, it's just a matter of time. You know, you you can't put everything in the summer, and you can't and you can't put everything. Uh, on uh, r- around Christmas either um, and so you can kind of take advantage in the schedule when you're producing so many of these things to kind of release movies in isolation and have them be successful maybe over a longer period of time maybe not have to have that giant first weekend being able to maybe have a couple of weeks where they're going to be collecting money at the top and uh, moving on but um, you know, one other strategy I kind of wanted to mention now that we're talking about it is that uh, we've seen a lot lately sort of sleeper comedies being released later in the summer you know the 40 year old virgin I I think kind of started that out. That was an August release and was a huge hit and of course this this summer is where, where the millers sort of came out of nowhere and and i think it's a it's a smart strategy if you're you're sort of worn down by two or three months worth of really big pieces of spectacle to kind of to kind of cool off with uh, comedy something uh, something uh, light and funny and and not so oppressive and maybe that's a, that seems to be an, an emerging strategy cuz uh, every summer seems to produce some little sleeper you know late late in august that that uh, scores
3: that's the other thing too is is that there's a lot of imitation going on in terms of this like you know, one sleeper comedy begets late in the summer begets next year, you're going to have a, a couple people try that. And, and it feels like the big studio pushed. Awards contenders are coming out earlier this year because largely they are, in part because of, uh, of, uh, of Argo last year, which which came out uh, early in the, in the season. And so we have your uh, your Captain Phillips and so forth that are, are out earlier than it than might have been, were that not the case.
0: So, Scott, at this point, are you saying that the we don't have to do anything to make their system break down? It's just going to break itself down as people try to shove their films in anywhere they'll fit or anywhere they might possibly get attention?
2: No, I, I mean, I think the system is, is going to be what it is. I mean, I, just, I feel like Hollywood just is, is going to keep producing a high number of movies that are done on a very large scale, and they're going to have to find ways to, to squeeze that into the schedule. But in terms of the concentration of big films, I think those are going to be in the summer in those couple of weeks uh, over Christmas and Thanksgiving.
0: Well, one of the things I I guess I'm curious about then to close is just, I Keith said that, uh, you know, films big films released outside the summer might potentially get long. Have you guys found that to be the case? Like, are there favorite films that you have that have come out in the last 10 years or so that did just kind of buck the trend in terms of, uh, you know, the, the seasonal pattern?
2: Well, one film, I'm not going to say it's a favorite film exactly, <laughs> because it's, it, because, but I, one, one film I'd like to see more of is, uh, I'd like to see more movies like Premium Rush, <laughs> uh, because because it's just, it's such a kind of a modest, I love the modesty of its scale. It's sort of this roadrunner action comedy, you know, and then it has kind of the spirit of fun to it. You know, it just felt, it, it felt so great to see a movie like that as, as kind of goofy and flawed as it was, you know, that, it just felt so different from all the things I'd seen that summer. There's no room for that. And I mean, obviously it, it tanked and it was really, it was given, it was barely released with not a whole lot of promotion, but uh, I wish, I wish there was some room for movies like that.
0: Matt?
1: Looking over the stuff that came out the last couple years, the only thing that I really felt fit the bill of something that kind of came out at a a different time than you would have expected just from what it was, uh, even though I guess it could be justified because it was a movie for kids and it came out at at, Christmas time when kids are on vacation too, was uh, The Adventures of Tintin, which maybe came out at that time of year also because it's Steven Spielberg and, you know, at this point his reputation and – his clout and stature kind of uh, suggests importance for everything he makes no matter how frivolous it was. And in that case, that was a really, really frivolous movie. Um, but I really enjoyed that film as a just like, you know, a spirited adventure movie with a lot of fun action sequences. And, and it felt more to me like a, a summer movie. And maybe I enjoyed it more um, because it came out at that time of year. It was not, quote unquote, important or, quote unquote, prestigious. It was an adventure, as it said right in the title. It was a, it was a lot of um So that would be the one. And I, I think that movie didn't do all that well, at least in the United States, uh, maybe because the material is uh, not as uh, bankable in the US. Tintin's not as recognizable here as he is overseas. But that would be an example of a movie that I think was counter-programmed or just put at a different time of the year than you might expect and maybe suffered a, a fate worse than it deserved
3: i'm kind of heartened by a couple of films that came out this last year that this summer that did that i liked and did pretty well and weren't exactly what people were expecting when that was much ado about nothing and the conjuring which is a relatively low budget horror film released in the middle of the summer but it happened to be very good which uh audiences showed up and and uh and you know i think uh, ditto with much much ado i mean much uh, much smaller film even than the conjuring but but it you know was released, And it was a certain amount of counter-programming involved in its release. And, and, and uh, people who uh, people went to go see it. So I think maybe people... Uh, there's a few cracks in the monolithic uh, approach here. And, and I'd like to see some more of those. That would be nice.
0: Well, you guys have given me a lot to think about. And uh, now I feel like I've, I've come down from my cliff. And I'm going to go look forward to uh, seeing some big blockbuster action movies this prestige season.
2: <laughs> Is that the lesson you're taking from this, Sasha? <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, it it is actually a little. uh, I I do feel better about all these things. So thanks. Thanks for talking about with me, guys. The recent theatrical release of the documentaries The Armstrong Lie and These Birds Walk, plus the DVD release of Sarah Polly's autobiographical doc, Stories We Tell, started an office conversation about how documentaries tend to reshape reality and to pat stories in a number of ways, via a framing story, or through a filmmaker's on-screen point of view, or many other methods. Some of these tactics seem more overt and intrusive than others, while in other cases the intrusiveness is the point because the story is personal to the filmmaker. We're not ruling out any one approach as inherently bad, different stories are better served by different approaches but sometimes what's clearest for the director isn't what's best for the story here to talk about some of 2013's documentary approaches with me are
2: Scott Tobias and Noel Murray
0: so uh did I just lie uh, are we are we okay in saying that no approach is inherently bad or are there documentary approaches that are inherently bad
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think there are some that i that I'm starting to like a little bit more than others, but I, I don't want to rule anything out because I mean, there are abuses in every form. Uh, there are abuses in first person documentaries, there are abuses in advocacy docs. Um, you know y- there are ways to go wrong, you know, no matter what kind of documentary you're making.
4: Yeah, I would say that uh, um I don't rule anything out, but when a documentary begins and I hear a person's voice saying, Something in the first person, I sort of inherently grown yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's certainly one that may have, may have been played out to a certain extent. But I agree with you that the, uh, the narrative documentary is, is one that I like, I think, more than any other.
0: You know, uh, Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell is one of my favorite films of the year so far. So that's one of the few sort of personal like eye documentaries that I've actually enjoyed recently. And part of that is just that her approach is so dedicated to keeping herself off screen, even though it's her story. You know, it's the story of her family. It's the story of her lineage. But she's not on screen talking to the camera all the time. And I think that kind of downplays that first person journalism thing that I hate so much where, you know, this isn't really the story of the world. This is the story of me, me, me.
2: Yeah, well, but it, of course she sort of commandeers the whole thing too, right? I mean, she, you know, everybody has, everyone in her family has their own perspective, and and the the the, the brilliance of that documentary is is documenting that and documenting the, the the various angles in which they each one of them approach telling the story. But ultimately, she she's in charge of that story, and this is and this is her thing. I mean, in fact, doesn't she? Isn't there a point where she tells her? father the person the, the man who raised her anyway that he shouldn't that to, to to not publish something because she's doing doing something am I am I making that up
0: though there's a whole thing about who gets to tell the right, story because exactly. a journalist gets a hold of it and she asks him not to tell it and she asks her father to uh represent himself in certain ways. I mean, I think there is uh, sort of overtly what the documentary is about is how we tell stories about ourselves and how we yeah. present ourselves, which I think it was an interesting sort of twist on getting at that subject. But I, I'm under, I'm given to understand Scott that you think it's especially towards the end. It's too much.
2: No, I think it's fantastic for about 75 or 80 minutes because, because she, there's a point in, in the movie where the, the meta aspects of it, um, Go from from a uh, background to foreground, and that's that's where the movie loses me. When when, when Sarah Polly kind of comes out and starts to tell us themes that I think are implied by just by the the way she's constructed this film. Noel.
4: Yeah, I, I yeah I, I agree with that. But I think what makes it work ultimately is that it is does sort of fall more into the pattern of a narrative documentary, like I mentioned before, than just a first person documentary. It's not just that she's telling the story; it's that there actually is a story that she leads us through her life. Uh, her past, bit by bit, and reveals things as she goes. Things that I was utterly unaware of the first time I saw the film. Uh, other people I know, I think, were aware of it. Maybe they have a different reaction to it. But for me, there was a legitimate sense of surprise as she was telling us more about her parentage and what her, you know, what her parents did, and you know. And then as she discovers things and and she sees things for the first time, we're sort of taking that journey right along with her. Which, uh, to me, I think forgive some of the more uh, navel-gazy aspects of the film.
0: I mean I personally didn't know any of that stuff either so I, I did enjoy that I can at the same time see where it is a very artificial way to tell a story to kind of tell it from such a limited perspective of this is me walking through this thing that you know took months and months and months to figure out this is me walking through it over the course of you know 80 90 minutes or whatever as though I'm discovering it for the first time people who complained about it complained that it was like catfishy in that way that it had that sense of you know you could possibly have not known this you just set out to fake discover it on camera in order to to present a story that way
2: i i i actually i would side with polly on that i i think i i think there's i think the film is quite profound for quite a while actually and in, in, in an interesting way it kind of is a critique of documentaries or or at least the way you know it got me to thinking in, in, in any case how uh, how stories are told, right? I mean, that that's, and, and uh, you know, there were a couple of recent. Well, one one movie I saw recently was The Armstrong Lie, uh, which is the new film by Alex Gibney. I don't even know what I should call a new film. The guy does like four films a year. So <laughs> he's probably got one or two other ones that he's already finished. But this follow, The Armstrong Lie, lie have, Alex Gibney followed Lance Armstrong in his comeback tour, Tour de France uh, 2009. Uh, he'd been away from the tour for a few years. He, there have been a lot of accusations of. Uh, drug use uh, of, of various uh, performance-enhancing drugs, all of which sort of bore, bore out <laughs> all these accusations that have trailed him for years. They finally stuck, but eventually... But uh, but there's there's one thing about the film that just irritated the hell out of me, which is that, you know, in 2009, Armstrong was going to run a clean race. You know, he ended up finishing third, and then it, then it was revealed later that, that that was a lie as well, that he had, he had in fact... Done it again. That he had had used uh, certain tricks, blood transfusion specifically, to, to enhance his performance, particularly in the in a certain mountain section of the race. And uh, you know, in in Gibney, you know, who is a tough, skeptical journalist. You know, gives Armstrong the benefit of the doubt, and, and the whole documentary is sort of framed by how Gibney feels that Armstrong owes him an explanation for lying to him. And I just feel that's kind of like bullshit, right? I mean, like, you know, if if you're if you're Alex Gibney and you're you're a journalist, I mean, I think he's what he's trying to do is, is trying to show how people can get lured in by by Armstrong's charisma and his achievements and, and, and kind of miss the fact that he's doing all of this while cheating but I don't but I think that's I don't believe that I just I just I think I feel like this is kind of the gibney lie I mean, I, I,
0: as you describe the film I haven't seen the movie so I, I have to be clear about that I, I'm not fond of people judging movies they haven't seen based on other people's descriptions so I'll try to keep that to a minimum but every time you've talked about this movie it kind of sounds like a little facile like he's uh, like giving these sort of manufacturing some outrage for himself in order to to give the movie more impact.
2: Well, right. And, and also just it, and give it that kind of regular guy feel. I mean, that's the that's the big problem with the first person people with your with your uh, with your Michael Moore's and your uh, and your Morgan Spurlock's. I mean, Michael Moore, there's no in Roger and me. Maybe that's the original sin or something. But Roger and me, you know, the, he, there was no way he was going to he was going to get this meeting with Roger and me. But it provided sort of a narrative Backbone uh, for a lot of other observations, and you know with Morgan Spurlock and Super Size Me, I actually think that's a, a somewhat better concept of eating McDonald's for a month. I mean, it's a big hook, but it, you know, and, and from that hook, you can kind of. Kind of make a lot of observations about the way fast food affects people's lives, but I, I don't know. I find that kind of, that, that, that stuff sort of false, you know, because it's just a false premise. You know, like where in the world is Osama bin Laden? It's not, You know, Morgan Spurlock is not going to catch Osama bin Laden. It's just kind of <laughs> it's dumb, and it and it makes it makes you feel kind of like a dummy watching it.
0: I mean, it's it's intended as playful. I'm not going it to is. disagree with you about it being dumb. It's but, cutesy, but it's I mean, it comes from this feeling. I think that you need some sort of framework. You need yeah. some sort of story if you don't already have a story to begin with. One of the films this year that's made me think most about how documentaries tell their stories and how they construct their stories uh, was this film called Let the Fire Burn. Jason Oster did this documentary about the uh, the mid-1990s Philadelphia firebombing its own people and killing a bunch of people that were part of this sort of cult, sort of movement, sort of political movement move, which had been a lot of trouble. And they basically dropped a bomb on them and and killed them all in a neighborhood and burned down an entire neighborhood in the process. And this documentary is constructed in a really interesting way, just entirely from news footage, from uh, surveillance footage, the police filmed the entire thing from like on-site interviews done in the time period by tv crews and it's basically just a compilation of news footage there's no new footage there are no new interviews there's no talking heads there's no looking back it's all just you know here's a document telling this story as it was told, as it happened in its time from a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more documentaries take this approach. It's a fascinating approach that very, very few have, but it's also some, something that generally you don't have the liberty to, to tell. And I think most documentarians want to put some sort of point of view or some sort of spin on what they're doing. And that's, that's kind of where you get the framework or the eye journalism is, uh, you know, I'm telling a story, not just look over there, there was a story.
2: Though so I think you could say, I mean, to talk about some other films that take that same approach. I mean, there's Senna from a f- couple of years ago, a few years ago, about about uh, the race car race car drive that's in t- that's done entirely uh, out of out of footage, uh, old foot old footage put together. There's just a lot of documentation of him, so you're, they're able to put something together. And then and then and then, of course, the classic is uh, Point of Order uh, the, about the the Army McCarthy hearings, where you're just he's just basically sort of editing down this committee hearing into something into you know. Into a narrative, I guess, a documentary narrative. So, so you can do it that way, and I, th- I think it's kind of an exciting approach for sure. Well,
0: oh, I mean, potentially, I think we're going to get more and more of these as we move into an era where everything is is documented, where everybody's self—you you get the capturing the Freedmans kind of thing, where somebody is self-documenting so meticulously that you have an idea of what's going on in his head at all times. But you also have you know news cameras, surveillance cameras, like everywhere now. So I wonder if this kind of approach is going to be more common. Noel, what have you seen this year that that made you think about storytelling in documentaries?
4: I would say a film called Informant, a documentary by Jamie Meltzer uh, about a man named Brandon Darby who uh, put two protesters in prison for their plans to disrupt the Republican National Convention. Previously, he had been an activist himself who was heavily involved with grassroots movements and and, uh, uh, helping the poor. And so a lot of folks thought of it as as a betrayal when he went back on the left uh, and started trying to point fingers at people that he claim to be involved in radical activities. Um, The documentary is semi-first person in that he is being interviewed Errol Morris style throughout the film, but there are other voices that come in and either corroborate or refute what he says. And the documentarian, uh, uh, Jimmy Meltzer, also shows some outtakes of Brandon Darby kind of freaking out occasionally at the questions he's being asked so it makes him seem a little bit edgier and not necessarily reliable. So it tells, I think, a very full story, one, again, that I wasn't all that familiar with before I watched the film, and it provides a variety of perspectives on it at the same time.
2: Well, one thing I've come to come to value is uh, a little bit of incompleteness in documentaries and and, and, uh, narratives that aren't so tidy. There's a movie that is coming out that just came out called uh, These Birds Walk. It's about the Eddie Foundation, which is a which is a organization in Karachi, Pakistan, philanthropic organization that's been around about 60 years. And, you know, it, it. it, you know normally for a documentary like this you expect you know like an advocacy advocacy doc it would be just a lot of talking heads and then it would end with like a website or something like that but but these bird walks th- these birds walk uh, sacrifices data points and, and some coherency frankly for a more incomplete but much more vivid picture of the people who work for Eddie and the, and the children who are aided by the organization. One of the things I really liked about the film, beyond its almost Terrence Malick-like beauty, was that it has that kind of quality of the interrupters, that, that Steve James movie about ceasefire, where it acknowledges failure as a possibility, that you have people who are really devoted to helping folks in need, very troubled children but that sometimes those efforts are not successful and you have to kind of live with that. And that's part of the job. And I just, I I, I appreciated that, the honesty of that. And I feel like, you know, that you can, that you can have something that isn't so tidily, so, that, that isn't that narratively t- tidy, but that, that kind of gets a deeper truth anyway, even if it doesn't provide you, if you want information about the Eddie foundation, you can look on Wikipedia. You don't need a movie for that. So I kind of appreciate these birds walk for taking it. A more uh, impressionistic approach.
0: I really want to see that film. It sounds fascinating. But I, I do prefer documentaries that uh, acknowledge, you know, some sort of potential for failure or some sort of question about where things are going. I really wish that I mean I uh, I won't say that this is a bad approach. It's just an approach I'm personally tired of. I'm, I'm tired of the alarmist doc. I have I have run out of alarm, you know. I've I've run out of alarm about, you know, peak oil and polluted water and running out of food and running out of jobs and we're all going to die and the economy is going to tank and on and on and on and on. I've just got gotten to the point where you know I don't don't want to sit down and, and watch these things, but at the same time that sort of documentary that does kind of explain like where we are and where we could go from here or what might happen next, I find kind of inherently fascinating. One of the other docs that I actually just wrote up was uh, The Square, which is a documentarian who spent the last two years following what's been going on in Egypt with the with the protests and the ouster of Hosni Bubarak and everything that kind of fell out from there. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't been following history at all. But one we, have, of the, we have
2: some very ignorant listeners, Dasha. Go ahead.
0: One of the things, hey, there were certainly aspects of it. like because, because she's on the ground during all of these things happening, she catches nuances to it that you don't get on the news. And part of that nuance is just hearing what individual people have to say about their experiences in the moment. So, you know, the, the news tells you, oh, Hosni Newburgh? Has resigned. What you don't see in that news clip is how, you know, five different people from five different walks of life feel about what's going on, feel about the lead up to it, feel about the aftermath of it. So there's sort of that, like, on the ground in the moment doc is something that I find fascinating. Even in this case, you know, you're looking at, in some cases, two year old events, but the movie walks right up to the present. You know, her her yeah, last she, footage was shot in August. Yeah,
2: after the movie premiered, she just added to it. <laughs>
0: she went back and shot some more um, yeah. via Kickstarter. So, I mean, that kind of thing I hope we also see more of is just this sort of in the moment, not looking back on history, but, you know, I was there in the middle of history. Here's what it looked like. So all of this like leaves us with a lot of different potential approaches for for different ways that people are telling documentary stories now, and part of that I do think is is you know new technology and the availability of new footage. Is there anything you guys really particularly want to see more of for the future?
2: I, well, I just want to see more films sort of wriggle away from uh, convention and, and embrace what Werner Herzog uh, called ecstatic truth.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
2: I, I feel like that's that's a better that's a, a better approach than 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 a more more of a cookie cutter style. No?
4: It's a it's a dangerous approach, but I, I like it when people go into a film and don't know what they're going to get. Like if they're interested in an issue, uh, be it one of these, you know, the we're all going to die issues or whatever it might be, and they choose to follow somebody to tell their story and don't know where it's going to end up. I find that you know when people put the work in and spend two years, three years, four years, five years to really get a larger sense of you know and a bigger picture of what's going on. Those are the documentaries that I'm I'm most impressed by, despite just by the sheer amount of effort it takes to to stick with an idea and and to know when it's when it's over. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the square. You know, conceivably that movie could be continue on for two or three more years. So just just to know when when you've told enough of the story is is something I find very interesting.
0: Well, I'm perfectly willing to check back in in two years for the square two and these birds walk two. Maybe not the Armstrong lie to so much. Where, uh, I'm back. <laughs> I'm Armstrong. still disappointed.
2: Armstrong, Lance Armstrong in his forties comes back to the uh, Tour de France and, and pulls off an amazing comeback victory. And it turns Let out us that us that he's question, still doping. <laughs> that's right.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys.
4: Thank you. All right. Thanks.
0: game portion of our show, we return to a game we've tried once before, Knife Gun Other, where we ask our contestants to identify how various movie characters die on screen. With me today to play are Nathan Rabin, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. So the way this works is I will give you an actor who plays a character who dies in a movie. Warning, this is a spoilery segment. If you don't want to know how various characters die in various ways, you should probably tune out right now. Um, The character and the film in which they die, your options are they die by knife, gun, or other. If you are correct on the other choice, you get an additional bonus round where you can identify how they die. We are playing with Scott Tobias' rule, so incorrect guesses lose you a point. However, you do not lose a point for getting the detail on other right. That is only there for the bonus point. So if, for instance, I was, say, Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea, Mm. you would (laughs) buzz in like Nathan Uh, Raven just did. Shark attack. But you would say other. Okay. Get your point. And Ooh, then I would say, right. and how exactly He's does he die? He's bitten in half by a shark. And it and comes that. out of nowhere. And it's the most amazing thing ever. And that would get you two points. Do I get points for enthusiasm? <laughs> you get extra <laughs> points for enthusiasm. And is that is like a shark's fin. However, if you're too enthusiastic, a giant CGI shark might pop out <laughs> of the floor and eat you right this moment. So let's get started. Number one, Russ Tamblin in West Side Story. <laughs> Nathan Ribbon. Uh, gets it with a knife, which would be other. <laughs>
4: what? What? Wait, what?
0: i'm gonna say other which, no. oh no he gets it with a knife that's one of the two choices that's one of your three choices that knife is true i am gonna brother. say knife 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 he gets it with knife he only gets it the once with the knife but you did gets say it that with the before knife. anything else all right you get you. the point sweet <laughs> number two william holden sunset boulevard keith Phipps. gun that is correct. Number three, Forrest Whitaker in Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. That was pretty close to simultaneous. Keith Phipps. Knife. You are incorrect and lose a point. Scott Got Tobias. Gone. Uh, Scott has it right with the gun, mm-hmm. and Scott gets a point. So now we're at one all, I think.
3: I was going to argue that a sword was a knife, but I can't argue that a gun's a knife. I'm just
0: sure. for... You cannot... But What about a I, I, I think I think that, I've that, failed in arguing that, that, that a sword is a We did uh, kind of have this argument last time. Um, as far as I'm concerned, a bayonet is not a knife. A sword is not a knife. But just to make things clear, nobody on this list dies by a bayonet, a sword, or a giant knife-shaped... Anything. Anyway. I think we should have Paul Hogan.
1: That's, That's not, a what it it not a knife. or <laughs> <This laughs> exactly. is not a knife?
2: This is a knife. the same joke.
0: Thanks. Number four, Alec Guinness mind. in Bridge on the River Kwai. Anybody? <laughs> all right. Keith Phipps.
3: Con. <laughs> all
0: right. He, uh, <laughs> Keith loses another point. Uh, unless you're going to argue on this one, which you might well. But I'm going to say that uh, you'd be incorrect to say that he dies via gun. Anybody? I, I think it's other. All right, Scott gets a point for other. For a bonus point, can you tell us what the other is?
2: Uh, I, I I have absolutely no idea. I just felt it was other. <laughs> he is. I don't remember.
0: Mortally wounded by mortar fire.
2: Mm. You
0: anybody want to make a, an argument that a mortar is a, technically a gun? Nope. All right, then we're moving on. It's a knife. Go ahead. <laughs> Number five. I, I heard he was stabbed by the titular bridge. Number five. Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan.
3: See, we're all spooked
0: now. We're all spooked. Tom Hanks. Guy Phipps. Gone. Correct. Hmm. Shot by a German prisoner. No. Oh. Yes, it's very That's sad, very much like event. every single other person who dies on this list. Number six, Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Gun. Correct. Ah. Number seven. <laughs> I can't believe I put this on this list. Number seven, William Shatner in Star Trek Generations. Nobody Uh, remembers Captain Kirk's Big (laughs) Death I'm going to to say other. You are correct. Do you remember what that other is? Space magic. (laughs) He was murdered using space magic. He is surprisingly close to space (laughs) magic. He is uh, trapped under a collapsing bridge. Uh, That has actually become a a TV trope. A bridge fell on him is uh, the description of the stupid, stupid contrivance you use to get rid of a long-running character. Number eight, Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege. Mm. Nathan I would have thought You'd be all yeah, over I, this This I is a not, horrible movie I have movie. not seen the movie Andrew this is, That's his best movie And it's movie. considered It's, Scott, it's Andrew yeah. Davis I mean it actually Somebody comes some out of a cake In that comes out uh, of a cake Gary Busey <laughs> <laughs> And then does Erica he die Laniac. Does he die by cake <laughs> yeah. Alright I'm disappointed uh, In our movie a cake <laughs> <laughs> <Gary> For homework <laughs> He's murdered via a <laughs> cake is that it, definitely right? definitely For homework You can go watch This entire scene On YouTube You do in fact Get to see Tommy Oh he probably gets Yes it's a little late for that one. Go right. Yes. He, well, you, you want to describe the scene, or you <laughs> want to just make the gesture? I feel like he was, he was, he's a chef, so he like <laughs> pretends to be a chef. And, all right. I, honestly, again, I have not seen this film. I'm going solely based on the trailer. Wow, amazing. No, he uh, he gets stabbed in a, a ridiculously comical way with a knife after a ridiculously comical knife fate that I, I encourage everybody to go watch on YouTube. Uh, that's great. Number nine, Charlton Heston in Spartacus. <laughs> Yes, Kee Phipps. Other. Yes, and for the extra point. Crucified. Oh, Good for man, you. Damn it. <laughs> oh, Scott. Sometimes you should just buzz, so in slow. And buzz in and make sure you catch it. Just buzz in guess. and then,
2: then pause there for I a second for and finally catch it.
0: All right, let's try this one out. Number 10, John Malkovich in Con Air. <laughs> Yes, Nathan? I'm going to go uh, other. You are correct. Other, do you for an extra point? Do you ah, remember what that is other he is? sucked out of an airport? airplane? He is not. He no. has his head smushed by a giant construction device that seems to have no purpose other than to smush the head of John Malkovich. <laughs> wow. Number 11, Alan Arkin in Wait Until Dark. Ooh, <laughs> do it, Scott. You knew it. Knife. Knife it is. Ugh. You get a point. Yeah.
2: I'm glad everyone held off on that Give me a chance to yeah. really process that. Everybody Appreciate actually it.
0: turned to you and looked, waiting for you to get that Thank one. Thank There is a gun in that movie. All right. As we're moving into our last few questions, we have a three-way tie, apparently. Three points for everybody. Has oh. this ever happened yeah. in the history of our games? No. Keith just decimates
2: Yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not. You don't even have to check. Definitely, Keith always I mean, wins. Keith
0: keeps letting us win. This could be it. All is? right. It's a race for the final few questions, and I do have a tiebreaker if it comes down to that. Number 12, Serenity Weaver in Alien 3. Yes, Keith Phipps. Uh, it's other. Yes, and that's your point. What I, is the
3: cause? I believe the molten, the molten lava, or the lava, or the fire gets her before. Or you could argue that the alien popping out of her chest kills her before that. But I think, I think actually, she dies by fire so.
0: I, I'm, I'm tempted just to be cruel and say none of these <laughs> things kill her her suicidal leap kills her but no she, she dies a whole lot of different ways over the yeah. course of one yeah. second I remember her a bit, like, having a very Christ-like element to her oh like. god yes we could do a whole thing of gun knife other that's just how do people die via things that make them look like they're being crucified no matter how they're dying number 13 Donald Sutherland in Don't Look Now Scott Tobias knife Yes, you are correct. I'm not going to describe the scene in case anybody hasn't yeah, seen a, it.
2: It's a big shocker.
0: One of the most shocking scenes in cinema, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Number 14 David Naughton in American Werewolf in London. Yes, Nathan Raven. Uh, other? No. Yes, Scott Tobias. Knife. No. no. Yes, you? Keith. What kind of a movie uh, is it?
2: Gun. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I with the what process kind of,
0: of elimination, oh, Keith gets oh. the point. All right, uh, this is our last official question. We'll see where we are after this. We, we, we've already lost. An eighth well, no, I we've got we've guess. got the we've got the bonus question as all usual. We've right. lost. All Let's try this number fifteen. Greg Kinnear in Mystery Men. Oh God, I know. Ugh, I've seen this film like a dozen for times. Scott guitars. Tobias, the other. you get the point for other. For the bonus point, do you know how he dies? A bowling ball to the head, <laughs> maybe? <laughs> there are a lot of weird weapons in this. Anybody want an extra point for, uh, for naming the thing that kills him? Oh, goodness. Uh, the thing that kills Greg Kinnear. Eddie Izzard
1: is <laughs> Cussingham on Frankenstein. He probably would be doing it.
0: Technically, it is uh, not. Uh, you guys need to, to rewatch this film. Um, I would have accepted uh, you know, Death Ray or, or Laser, but for, for the true aficionado, the correct answer is Psychofraculator. All right, that is the end of our official 15 questions. Keith is going to win this one with six. Scott is, however, pulling off a quite respectable five. Nathan is trailing Ooh. along with three. Oh. Scott, I'm going to give you one just to see if you can catch up with Keith and spoil the whole game for <laughs> everybody except you. Uh, for an extra bonus point.
3: Wait, but did
0: I win? Yes, you won. Oh, we're f- just we're just going to see if uh, if Scott can kick your butt as you walk out the door a winner. But... Scott <laughs> right. Scott, give me this one. Shelly Winters in Knife of the Hunter.
2: Uh, she is stabbed by the knife. <laughs>
0: She is, in fact, stabbed with a knife. Did you notice I said knife of the honor? <laughs> I think I really <laughs> wanted to give you that. Wow! Point.
2: No, I think I think I think one of my favorite films of all time. I, I, I know, who, good how, yeah. And Can as and, a, and as a bonus point for myself, Janet Leigh and Psycho, knife. I, uh, is that give me the win.
0: That, that does not. <laughs> it does, in fact. Everybody here is a winner, except in a more accurate way. Obviously, Keith Phipps he is the winner. He is. But we made him work harder for it. It this was. Time. It was a better yeah. contest. This Next time. time around, you guys are going to get him. Mm-hmm. Possibly with Probably a knife, not, possibly with a gun, <laughs> but much more likely with a quiz. Or All right, thanks <laughs> for playing, guys. Thank you. <laughs> <Also>. Thank you. <laughs> if possibly anybody if brings their like psychofraculator to the game, you're, you're <laughs> As usual, we're wrapping up with the recommendation portion of our show, 30 seconds to sell. We're impatient people with a lot of films to watch, so we demand people recommending more films tell us what's great about them as quickly as possible so we can get back to watching more movies. So here, two dissolvers have exactly 30 seconds each to sell the host, that's me, on a movie or something else related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an idea, or whatever they want. The host gets to pick who sold their idea best in 30 seconds and is then morally obligated to take the recommendation. Up first, Scott Tobias. Ready, Scott?
2: Oh, I'm nervous. All right. <laughs> All let's, right. Let's do it.
0: 30 seconds. Go. Because we're
2: talking about unconventional documentaries, I wanted to recommend "Whore's Glory by Michael Glawiger, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, Glauweger is an Austrian director who doesn't make advocacy docs or fly on the wall docs. Uh, either, but carefully framed and crafted impressions of real life that stretch the bounds of nonfiction. Horse Glory is his is part of his globalization trilogy, and it visits three prostitution sites of increasing squalor in Bangkok, Bangladesh, and Mexico. It's vividly staged, staged, and yet that staging does obscure. <laughs> doesn't ah, <laughs> anyway. I should I should say not for the faint of heart. I, I have, to, I hey, have hey, to. Hey, that's, that's I'm just saying. That's completely I, can keep that extra textual. You can just say that. Biased. I'm just I'm just saying. I'm putting that out there. You
3: were speaking very quickly, Scott. How do you pronounce that director's name again?
2: Quiet, you. (laughs)
0: All right, enough teasing, Scott, and more recommending stuff to me. Keith Phipps, go.
3: Okay, I'm going to recommend a a film that is reviewed on DVD and Blu-ray called The Uninvited. It's a haunted house film uh, from 1944, sorry, Uh, directed by Lewis Allen and starring Ray Milland and Gail Russell. It is extremely atmospheric and one of the first films to take the supernatural seriously. Uh, Rather than just as as a joke, it's set in Cornwall and it's got all kinds of atmosphere and it is uh, uh, sort of haunted in, in lots of different ways and if nothing else it's got the guy who played Alfred on Batman in it.
0: I don't know. There's so much out, there's so much information outside the uh, the realm of the 30 seconds here. Which Batman? Which Alfred? Is it for the faint of heart? I just don't know. It is not. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm going to award Keith Vips the mm, victory it's, due it's, to Scott's flagrant cheating and trying to turn this into 35 seconds to sell. Scott Tobias, I'm watching that film, expecting it for, to be of the faint of heart because I am ignoring anything that came out beside your 30 seconds. All right, seconds. go to enjoy.
2: You know, get the popcorn <laughs> out for it then. Keith, um,
0: I will also uh, watch your film while expecting it to be for the faint of heart. If I faint while watching either of these films, I will come back and blame you both. Thanks a lot for right, playing, guys. Thank you. Well, that about does it for episode eight of the Dissolve podcast. Tune in in two weeks for episode nine. In the meantime, you can experience the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you want to yell, how could you forget about the Psychofraculator at Keith, Scott, and Nathan, you'll find them on Twitter as kphips3000, Scott and Nathan Raymond, all one word. Thanks for listening.
1: Knife, 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 (laughs) he gets it with knife.